Luke chapter 16 as we continue our, our study in Luke 16. <clears throat> I guess I better turn to Luke 16 as well. That will be helpful. So, and while they're, they're dismissing, let me just remind you again that, um, you know, after church we have our, our fellowship meal. That's basically a potluck, and we would love to invite you to, uh, to join us. And then after that will be just a brief time of a progress report. So um, that's just what we call a business meeting. But uh, we update on what's going on, where we're at, um, and it's also a great time to celebrate the great things that God has been doing. So with that, let's uh, consider Luke chapter 16. We're studying in the Gospel of Luke, taking this uh, Gospel uh, chapter by chapter, thought by thought, verse by verse, and we are working our way through it. We are uh, a little more than halfway through the book. I don't know how much longer we have here, but um, I guess just settle in because we're still here for a while. But that's okay. It's been, I've enjoyed it. I hope you guys have learned. So, we come to chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. And last week, the parable we looked at, the parable of the, the prodigal son, we, we, just, we talked about maybe one of the best known parables. And we talked about it even being maybe one of the finest short stories ever written. And I think we can affirm that. Of course, it's more than a short story, but it's one that most people are somewhat familiar with. Now we come to the parable of the unjust steward, and we might call this the most difficult parable to uh, understand in Jesus' teaching. He told a lot of parables, spoke a lot of parables, and this one here is a challenge, and I trembled before it. But I hope that we can uh, make sense of it and give some, some practical understanding of what's going on. Remember, this is going to teach us some things about who God is. It's going to teach us about how we live out our lives as disciples. So this is a challenging parable. Well, the thing that perhaps makes it most challenging is because it centers around the master's praise or the, the, uh, the praise of basically a crime, extortion. And so people have wondered, how is it that Jesus can use a parable about praising illegal behavior and use that for his benefit? So, or in other words, some people might even say, is Jesus endorsing unethical behavior? Because the, the, the parable centers around a manager who is caught being wasteful with his boss's money, and then to solve the problem, he extorts from his boss. And then his boss says, man, you're a pretty smart guy. So there's our, you can see the issue. It's like, okay, so what do we do with this? So that's, that's our issue. And then, of course, does Jesus endorse such, such actions. And of course, we're all going to say, no, of course he doesn't. And that's true. You're right. Jesus does not endorse such actions. So, so what are we to make of this parable? Well, let me just, as we go into it, let me see if we can make some, uh, set some groundwork so that as we work our way through the parable, um, 
it's much easier and, and, and all the pieces will more likely than not fall into place. First of all, we should not be surprised that Jesus uses a story or tells a story um, that uses shock value to make a point. And parables will do that. It's not unusual for Jesus to tell a parable that employs shock value to make a point. For instance, in a little while, we're going to be talking about uh, an unjust judge who basically gets pestered into um, meeting a person's request. And so people say, well, is that the way God is? Does God, do I need to pester God to get him to answer my request? But sometimes Jesus uses shock value to get our attention. That should not be too, uh, too unusual. But here's the other thing, and this is, I think this is really important when we consider this parable. This is what we would call a how much more argument. All right. So this follows along a very well-known pattern of teaching called how much, which we'll just call how much more, there are fancy names for it, but um, we don't need those. How much more? And, and here's the classic example. The classic example is Jesus, is, in, in one of Jesus' teachings, he says this. Now, you fathers, if one of your sons comes and asks for a fish, you would not give him a serpent, would you? Likewise, if your child came to you and asked for a stone, or for a for bread, you would not give him a stone, would you? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more your heavenly Father knows how to give good gifts to his children. That's a classic how much more argument. Another one, much more subtle, but I think way more profound, that we find in Romans chapter 5, where, where Paul is talking about it, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Which, that by itself is an amazing statement. But then he goes on, and this is the how much more argument, that, it, that if that's the way God, and I'm going to paraphrase here, if that's the way God treats his enemies, how much more will he treat you now that you are his friend? Now that's an incomprehensible passage of text. If he treats me, while I'm a sinner, by dying for me, for my sins, while I'm hating him, despising me, now that I'm his friend, how much more? How will he treat us now that we are his redeemed? And I don't think there's an answer to that question. But that's a class, those are, those are how much more arguments, and this is a classic how much more argument. So are we good there? We understand where we're going. Well, here's the direction I am uh, proposing to take. First of all, we want to talk a little bit about the parable. There is a brief interpretation in the second part of uh, verse 8. Jesus is a very, very brief interpretation. And then there's an application. There's actually three applications, and we'll spend um, some significant time dealing with the application. So that's the direction we're planning on going. So, if you will, would you follow along with me as I read God's inerrant word? Luke chapter 16, verses, verse 1. He also said to his disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do? 
since my master is taking the management away from me. I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So, summoning his master's debtor, one by one, he said to the first, how much, money do you, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eter- the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have been, not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This ends the reading of God's holy word. So this begins, Jesus, there's there's a little shift here. Jesus is now teaching, he's speaking to the disciples. You'll recall prior to that he was speaking to uh, the Pharisees because the Pharisees were concerned that Jesus was... um, fellowshipping or eating with tax collectors and sinners, but now he's teaching his disciples. But make no mistake, the Pharisees are still around, and we'll see next week that they're listening in, and I think this is directed not only to the disciples for them to learn and how to become uh, mature and better disciples, but also to serve as a rebuke against the the Pharisees who the text tells us, and we'll see this uh, a little later, that the text tells us um, that they are greedy and lovers of money. So, Um, As disciples of Jesus Christ, we are to um, receive this and learn from it, and I pray that we grow and become uh, more in the likeness of Christ through the the understanding of this parable. So he's speaking to the disciples, and he says there's this rich man who has a manager, and charges were brought to him that the man was wasting his possession. So basically, um, this manager, a steward, has been squandering his, uh, his boss's money, and the boss hears about it, calls him in, and basically fires him. And so after firing him, he says, now bring me all your accounting books. So bring in all your books, bring in um, your records, and you're done. After that, you're done. So the manager is like, well, okay, well, what am I going to do? What to do? I, I need to figure out, I'm... I'm I, I, I don't want to dig. That's a, that's a tough job. Remember, he has a white-collar job, all right? So he's a manager. He's, he's handling money. Um, and now he's going, I don't know what I'm going to do. Nobody's going to hire me back as a manager. That gig's over with once they hear that I'm an embezzler. That's not going to happen. And I don't want to dig ditches. That's way too hard. And I certainly don't want to beg. I wonder what I'm going to do. Manager says, what shall I do? 
I have decided what to do. This is a, a very interesting statement. It's kind of the aha moment. There's a, there's a bit of an emphasis here that all of a sudden, I don't know if this was a cartoon or something, the light bulb would come in on top of his head and he would realize, oh, hang on, I know exactly what I'm going to do. I've got a plan. By the way, his plan is basically embezzlement for the most part. Or at least that's what it appears. So what he's going to do is he's going to say, here's the thing, I need to set myself up for the future. So I'm going to go to my customers, my, the debtors, the people who owe my boss money, and I'm going to go to them and I'm going to sit down and I'm going to cut their bill down to a much more management size. That way, once I get fired, I got friends. I got people who, have, who owe me a little bit. And perhaps I can get a job that is not digging ditches and is not begging, and I can get a nice job with them. So that's his plan. Now, this plan has caused Bible students a, a, a number of difficulties in the past, because how do we understand what he's doing? Is this right what he's doing? Is this unjust what he's doing? And the traditional view, I'm going to give you three different views of how this has been addressed, and then I'll give you a, a personal opinion on this. But the first view, the traditional view, is that what he is doing is just flat out dishonest. He's embezzling. You owe $1,000, fine, give, give me 500 and write 500 so when I turn in my books, it's going to say you owe 500, you paid 500 and your, your account is clear. And the nice thing with this view is it, is A, it fits the text very, very well. It makes a lot of sense. The, the one challenge we come into is that the, the boss praises him for his shrewdness. Remember, he doesn't praise him for his action. praises him for his shrewdness. But that's not shrewd. That's just illegal. That's a crime. Um, I don't know why he would praise him for his criminal activity. But it's a parable, and I think there would be room in a parable for such a for such a response. So that's the, that's the first way. And, I, and I'm somewhat convinced by that. The second way is that really the, the amount of money that is being reduced here, the, um, the 50% and the 20%, um, 50% on, on the oil and, and 20% on the wheat, is really all he's reducing is the interest that has been charged. And I thought to myself, at the very beginning, I thought, well, He's just trying to thought, that just doesn't make sense. But a guy by the name of um, J. Duncan Garrett has written a book on this, and he mounts up massive amounts of, of evidence that this is exactly what's going on. And so he did a very, very nice job. I, I forget the name of the book at this time, but he's done a really nice job of um, highlighting that this is exactly what he's done. And in fact, what the, the, the manager has done is exposed the boss's usurious interest. He was not supposed to charge another Israelite interest according to the law of Moses. And so by doing this, he makes friends with his debtors. He exposes his master so, so the boss can't really come back and say anything. This makes a lot of sense. This is a shrewd move. 
And like I said, there's plenty, I think there is good evidence on that. So the master can't say, hey, wait a second, you acted unrighteously. Really? Didn't you just break the law of Moses by charging interest to these people? And this is usurious interest in the first also. So you're doubly condemned. This is really shrewd. This is a good move. This is now not only securing his future with people, but making sure that no charges are going to be brought against him. I think that's shrewd. And like I said, I think there's good evidence to that. The third way is that, um, the third way this has been understood is that what he's writing off is his commission. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I don't see any. I, I haven't seen um, research that has demonstrated that to a convincing... It does, I'm not convinced by it. It makes sense. I just haven't seen the evidence to convince me. So, um, what's he doing? I, I think either one, he's, he's just a crook, and the parable allows for that, or B, he's writing off the interest, and he's putting his boss in a bad place and putting himself in a good place. And this is why then the, the, the boss, the master, comes along and says, um, and, and responds, oh, he's acted shrewdly. He praises his shrewdness. So, yeah, so verse 8, the master commended the dishonest. Notice, he's still considered dishonest. He's still a crook. He still ripped off his boss. He still wasted and squandered his boss's money. That has not changed. And, and the boss is not praising him for his dishonesty. He's still a dishonest guy. He's praising him for his shrewdness. So, that's a basic understanding of the, uh, of the parable. Let me give you just a couple thoughts before we move along to the interpretation and to the uh, applications. The first thing we should recognize, and that might all, often get lost in this uh, parable, is the fact that the master owns everything. And we should keep that in mind. The manager was simply a steward of somebody else's stuff. And it's important for us to realize that everything we have belongs to God. There is nothing that we have that is not His. That is, your car, your home, your kids, your time, your leisure, your, your hobbies, everything belongs to God. There is nothing that he does not own. 1 Corinthians 4.7 tells us, what do you have that has not been given to you? What do you have that has not been given to you? And, and I want to read this passage. I love this passage from, from Deuteronomy. I, I, I probably read it often, but it just seems to be so applicable so often. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses um, 10 and following, this is what God says. He says, And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did um, not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and you are full, take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, I'm going to give you all kinds of good stuff. You did not build them, you did not dig them, you did not work for them, but I, they are mine and I'm giving them to you. There is nothing that you have that God has not given to you. So sometimes, um, many in our church, and I being one of them, would, would hold to the principle of tithing. 
I, I think it's a biblical principle. But the problem with it is sometimes we end up thinking that God owns 10% of our stuff. Tithing is just 10%. That's all it means. It means a tenth. And perhaps the problem is we think that, you know, God owns, God gets, God owns 10%. I, I'm going to give him 10%. No, God owns 100%. 100%. And perhaps this is why Paul in, 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 in 1 Corinthians 16 says, As the Lord has prospered you, give, be generous as the Lord has prospered you. So we need to make sure that we understand or remind ourselves of the fact that all that we have, all that we have belongs to God. And I, and I tell this story um, pretty often that my, my unbelieving friends um, find it silly that we say thanks over a meal, that we pray grace over a meal. And by the way, when... Well, anyway, they, they just think that's kind of silly. They're going, wait a second. I'm the one who got the job, and I'm the one who worked for it, and I'm the one who earned the paycheck, and I'm the one who went to the store, and I'm the one who bought it, and I'm the one who fixed it, and I'm the one who did all of this, and now we're thanking God for it. And that just makes no sense to them. To which, of course, the, the believer replies, well, the reason you have a job is because God gave you the intelligence, and he gave you the job that you could earn that money, and he provided a store for you. There are a lot of people who don't have stores near them, and gave you the ability to purchase and gave you the intellect to cook it and all of these things, everything that you have, that preparation for that meal, that simple meal that you sit down and eat, whether it be peanut butter and jelly or something much more elaborate, it is uh, 100% of that comes to you by God's gracious gift. We need to keep these things in mind. So now Jesus provides a very brief interpretation and then three applications. So let's look at the interpretation. And this is in the last part of chapter, um, I'm sorry, of verse 8. So the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And here's the interpretation. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. In other words, unbelievers are more clever in securing their future than believers. That's a rough understanding. This is the how much more argument right here. If a wicked, unbelieving, dishonest manager has the good sense to wisely prepare for his future, how much more should the children of God who have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, who have been redeemed and purchased by the blood of Christ, who understand the future plans of God, how much more should they be able to wisely navigate future plans? That's the how much more argument. If this guy, being wicked, knows how to plan for his future, how much more are you got? How much more are you and I, who have been redeemed, who have the Spirit of God, who understand, read God's Word, and understand where God is going, and understand His plans and the culmination of His plans and how He's going to bring those plans about, how much more should we then be able to negotiate or wisely prepare for the future? In other words, God's children should be shrewd with their possessions by being, and we're going to see this, by being generous. Daryl Bach wrote, Christians should be able to apply themselves to honor and serve God in their actions as much as secular people apply themselves to obtain protection and prosperity from money 
and the world. Christians should apply themselves to honor and serve God in their actions as much as secular people apply themselves to obtain protection and prosperity from money and the world. This is the focus then of this particular parable. How do we live as disciples with the various possessions that belong to God that he has given to us to steward and to manage? Because again, God owns everything and he has given us management responsibilities. We do not want to be like the unwise manager who squanders and wastes our bosses, our God, our Lord's resources. And again, this has to do with everything, our leisure time, our recreation, our children, our parents, those we care for, our neighbor, our employees, our superiors in in the workplace, all of these things. So let's take a look at some some of the applications then that, that Jesus makes and see what we do with them. And the first one is probably the most challenging of them. The first one then is this. And I tell you, verse 9, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Make friends by, I'm going to use the, the um, kind of the Aramaic word here, make friends by unrighteous mammon. That's the word, and it's kind of an old word, but it just has to do with possessions. Make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth or possessions. And the reason it's unrighteous, it's not, it's not unrighteous because it was obtained illegally. In other words, it's not unrighteous because somebody got it by robbing a bank, you know, or holding up a Circle K or anything like that. It's unrighteous because it... It has to do with this fallen world. It's unrighteous because it belongs to the common and not to the holy. It's unrighteous not because it was obtained illegally, but because it, it, it is only for this world. Wealth is only for this world. That's the only place it has value. Because it will have zero value in the world to come. Right? You know, the old joke, somebody takes their gold with them and... St. Peter says, what, you, you brought pavement? Took you a while to get that one, but I didn't set it up very well either, so. The pursuit of earthly possessions often brings about selfishness and greed. So this is its unrighteous element. But here's the exhortation. Use this temporal resource for eternal good. That's, that's the idea here. So the exhortation is use this temporal resource that is part of this fallen world, but use it so that it produces an eternal benefit. In other words, think about your future, just like this unrighteous steward. He's thinking, what, what am I going to do? What is my future going to look like? So use it for the eternal good, so that when it fails, and by the way, it will fail. I'm not talking about stock market crashes. I'm not talking about, uh, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about on the day that you die, everything you own has zero value to you. Zero value. You can pass it along to your children. You can give it away to a charity. But to you, it has zero value. So when it fails, and it will...
you may be received. Let me get this right here. So that when it fails, they, that is, the friends that you have made by this unrighteous wealth, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. Well, that's a pretty difficult statement. Someone has said, you can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. I never knew that that had a biblical foundation to it, but I think it does, and it's right here. In other words, I believe what Jesus is saying is that as you enter eternity, those who have come to Christ due to your generosity will be there to welcome you. That's the idea. So use your resources that God has given to you to make friends for yourselves so that when it fails, and it will, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. The idea here is that those who have become believers because of your generosity welcome you into your heavenly home. So Christ is there, and so is those. And I wonder who, who, how this works itself out. I, I remember years ago, gosh, so, so we've been blessed to, uh, to serve at this church for over 17 years now, and, and we're just really blessed by it. But when we first came, and, and I think Dixie's our, our, our only one who precedes us here, she's been here even longer than us, and we're grateful for Dixie's faithfulness, but um, not long after we came here, and there was just a few of us here, um, a, a mission opportunity came up, and it, we couldn't go, um, but to help support um, some friends who were going on a mission trip, and um, uh, we committed, I forgot, we, we committed a few hundred dollars to, to that so that we could send somebody over to Thailand, and uh, it was a bit of a stretch to do that, but, but we really felt, you know, Let's do this. And I remember getting a report back from Thailand how a Buddhist monk came to know the Lord because of that person who we helped send. And I remember sitting here going, what is a soul worth? I mean, that was probably 15 bucks a person. It's probably what it was. It might have been 10 bucks a person. Not even, no, maybe 15, maybe 20 bucks a person. What is the value of a soul? And, and I think about, I wonder, I don't know, just, this is still part of a parable. So there's probably some flexibility in how this actually plays out. But I wonder, I just wonder, um, as, as we walk across eternity's threshold, will that Buddhist monk be there going, praise God, let me hug your neck. And then how many people has he brought to know the Lord? Since Will they be there? saying, we came because of him. Remember the 15 bucks you spent? How awesome. How awesome is that? What's the value of the soul? I think this is what, what Jesus is saying. Use your material resources that all belong to God, but use them in such a way um, to earn friends um, in this world so that when your resources come to an end and they will and you step across the threshold of eternity, you will see the beauty and the fruit and the glory of what you've done. What a, what a cool application. So, 
The idea here is um, use the possessions that God has given you to proclaim his name. Use the possessions that God has given you to proclaim his name. And we can do that in a lot of different ways. And so we don't need to detail them. But, but we're thinking of all of these things in light of the future. We're thinking of these things in light of eternity, not in light of, you know, the temporal, you're here today, gone tomorrow. Because everything we have will burn. And I don't think that doesn't mean that you don't have, I mean, don't buy cool stuff or fun stuff or enjoy. Just understand where it comes from and make sure we're generous. We need to be generous. And I'm thankful that this church has always been generous. I can't think of a time when this church has not been generous. Anytime there's been a need. Anytime we said there's a mission opportunity. There's a person in need. There's a person who's homeless. There's a person who needs a place to stay. Anytime. And we've come to the church and says, man, what do we do? There has never, ever been a time that I can recall, at least while I've been here, that people say, well, I don't know. I don't know if we can afford that. No, take care of them. Bless them. Be generous. I think we can be generous as a church and we can be generous as, as individuals. And then he goes on, the, the next application is the one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and the one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Now this one here isn't very difficult to understand. There's a basic application, or a, the application is very basic. If you're faithful in little, you'll be faithful in much. And, but the point here is that generosity... Um, Generosity has little to do with quantity of resources. I hear people, and I probably even said it myself, you know, <clears throat> if, I, if I earn just a little bit more, then we can be more generous. Or, when I get the bonus, then, then we can be generous. Or, something along those lines. When such and such happens, then I can be generous. Well, perhaps you can be more generous, but, but generosity... Does not, is not dependent on quantity. Jesus praised the widow who gave the smallest amount as the uh, paradigm of generous giving. Did she give very much? Absolutely not. But Jesus praised her for her generosity, for her, her, her love for others. And so generosity has little to do with quantity because this has everything to do with character. A person's character, will they be faithful with little? Um, if they're not faithful with little, they won't be faithful with much. And so it has everything to do with one's character. And I've read some very disturbing <coughs> reports that often talk about those who are actually at the lower end of the socioeconomic scale are more generous um, than those who are at, as, as wealth or as possessions increase at least the percentage of their income. Now, it's true, people who have a lot may actually give more. You know, I mean, if you have a... a billion dollars and you give a million, that's a lot of money. But as a percentage of your income, it's not really all that much at all. 
So generosity, be generous, is, is the thing. And it's interesting because that possessions or money here is referred to a very little thing, which is so antithetical to how we live our lives because our lives are focused around what we own and how much we make. Jesus, this is a very little thing. So those who are faithful with small things will dem- demonstrate that they will be faithful with f- future spiritual blessings. In other words, if you can't be trusted in the proper care of another person's property, why should you be ever, ever be given your own? So the point is, is, once again, God owns everything. And if he's given you a little, will you be faithful in the little that God has given you? Will you be faithful with it? Will you be generous? Will you be faithful in the little that God has given you? And if God has blessed you, are you still being generous? One of our former deacons who was here when I first got here um, lived a very, very simple life. As you know, Pastor, <clears throat> there was a time in my life, I don't know, back in the 30s or the 40s or something, and he said, <clears throat> I made $40 a week, and I was faithful. I was faithful. I gave that $4, I put $4 in that offering plate every week. I was so faithful. And God blessed me. God blessed me. I, I started making $400 a week. And I stopped being faithful and generous. And you know what God did? He gave me my $40 a week job back. (laughs) Just the idea. What do you have? How how can we be faithful in in what God has given us? And and I do want to make sure I recognize I'm... I won't go there. Then he goes on and he says, Serve God and not possessions. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one or love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And this is just basic, a basic principle of Scripture. You can't serve two masters. James talks about this. You can't be double-minded because you're going to love one or, or the other. And there comes a point where we need to choose our priorities. We need to, there comes a place where we need to choose. What am I going to serve? Who am I going to serve? Either God owns you or your possessions own you. Either God owns you or your hobby owns you. Either God owns you or your something else owns you. Who owns you? What owns you? Jesus is talking to us about how to be disciples, how to live out his purposes in this life. And he's saying, you know, Unrighteous people got this figured out. They know how to prepare for their future. You know the true future. You know God's future plans. You know how he is going to um, come and judge the world, the living and the dead. You understand these things. So then how do we live out our lives in light of God's future plans? Shouldn't we at least be as wise as those in the world? If they can do it, how much more the children of light so I'll, I'll close with, with this idea, a couple of ideas here. Uh, this passage highlights that life is stewardship. 
Life is a stewardship. God has given us life. Remember, your life, every breath you take is a gift from God. God owns every breath, every breath you take. He owns everything. He owns the air you breathe in, the carbon dioxide you breathe out. He owns everything. And what he's given you is to be lived in light of faithful stewardship to him. I'm not here to tell you how, how you do that. I'm not here to say you got to, you know, and I'm certainly not saying, you know, <clears throat> at the end of this sermon, we're going to pass the offering plate around again. We're not going there. I'm not going to say, you know what, if you give to God, he'll give you a hundredfold back. I don't believe that nonsense. I do believe that we, we are generous, whether God gives us anything back or not. God has blessed us. We are to be generous in whatever capacity. If you have a lot or you have a little, you're to be generous. So, steward what God has given us. The unrighteous steward maximizes his future interest by thinking ahead, demonstrating that he is wiser than sometimes God's children are. We also learn the character is established in little things. And as disciples, as followers of Christ, we are called to be generous, faithful, and undivided. Generous, faithful, and undivided with the things that God has given us. So, so let's be generous. And, and I believe that the Holy Spirit in you will, will lead you in the way that that plays out in your life. You know, some of you are at stages of life where you've paid off all of your bills, you don't have mortgage payments, you don't have car payments, the kids are gone and they're out of school and all of these things. You're in a place that, that is different than maybe, say, somebody who's got kids coming up trying to put some money aside for college and still trying to pay a mortgage and, and all of these things. And we're all at different places. What I'm saying is wherever you're at in those places, prioritize your life so that you take care of your family, that you have the things you need, and that you're, you're planning for the future, but also that we are being generous, that we are being faithful with the things that God has given us, and that we are not being owned by our possessions, that we're not being owned by the things that God has called us to manage. And I believe if you're wondering about that, you know, I'd be happy to sit down and talk with you, but the other thing is... is God's given you the Holy Spirit. Seek God. Seek His Word. What are the things that God loves? So, as disciples, we are called to be generous, faithful, and undivided. And ultimately, folks, we are to use God's resources for eternal purposes. So, as we are making sure that we have education for our kids, that we are making sure that we have a roof over our heads and, and food and a warm home when it, when it rains and when it snows and all of those things, let's also not forget that we are to use our resources also for eternal purposes, to share the gospel with a dead, with a dark and dying world. to reach out to communities, to reach out to our neighbors so that they might know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you stand with me and pray?